0: Welcome to the Advancing Surgical Care Podcast, brought to you by ASCA, the Ambulatory Surgery Center Association. ASCA represents the interests of outpatient surgery centers of every specialty and provides advocacy and resources to assist them in delivering safe, high quality, cost effective patient care. As with all of ASCA's communications, please check to make sure you are listening to or viewing our most up to date podcasts and announcements. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill Prentice. I'm the CEO of the Ambulatory Surgery Center Association, or ASCA, and the host of this episode of the Advancing Surgical Care podcast. My guest today is very well known in the ASC community, Naya Kihez of ECG Management Consultants. She's a partner and the ASC practice leader for ECG Management Consultants with more than 30 years of professional experience in the healthcare industry. She's a trusted advisor to ASCA and a member of our Government Affairs Committee, and we rely on her advice and expertise on a wide range of issues. And I've invited Naya onto the podcast to talk with me about the process at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, and the implications of moving surgical procedures from the agency's hospital outpatient list, or the HOPD list, to the ASC covered procedures list, or ASC-CPL as well as the implications of moving procedures from the ASC procedure list back to the HOPD list. So every year, ASCA makes submissions to CMS uh, through the our payment rule process to expand the scope of procedures that can be performed in the outpatient setting. And despite our success at gaining approval for several procedures over the years, We've also been frustrated by the unfortunate removal of a number of codes off of the ASC CPL in 2022 and the lack of transparency associated with that reversal. There was actually 255 codes that came off that list, a subset of which we think really belong on our list um, and for which we have been you know, offered comments in this year's uh, payment rule. Now, thanks to our continued advocacy with CMS, uh, we continue to make progress despite that setback in 2022, and I'm eager to hear Naya's take on the implication for ASCs. I also want to ask Naya to gaze into her crystal ball and tell us what she sees in terms of future opportunity for migration and what that might mean for ASCs. Naya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. So Naya, as you know, there have been a number of instances where ASCA has submitted substantial data and travel to CMS with clinical experts to make the case for safely moving certain procedures to our payable list, only to be frustrated by neither receiving an approval nor an explanation of why our submissions were rejected. Can you comment on this process and the factors you believe, other than clinical data, that underlie some of these decisions?
1: Sure. Bill, it's often a mystery, as you know, as to why CMS does not approve codes that have been submitted by ASCA, despite the amount of research, the data that we've collected and analyzed and synthesized to support the approval of new codes. The deficiency with the transparency in the decision-making process is problematic, you know, and without understanding the basis for the decision of both adding and deleting codes by CMS, it makes it difficult to aggregate and provide an appropriate response to negate these decisions, which often seem very arbitrary. While some of the concerns around transparency are expected to be addressed by the new regulations and the nominations process, these have now been delayed until 2025, which prolongs the concerns with transparency even further with respect to addressing denials of code requested to be added to the CPL.
0: Right. Can, can I just interrupt you there, just, just, yes. just for our listeners to be aware of that. So we, for years, have been telling CMS that they need a more transparent process for when we submit you know, data to basically say they have to provide us feedback. And they believe we've fallen short on some criteria in terms of getting a procedure put in our list. And they have not done that. They Last year, they finally decided they were going to create this process. Unfortunately, it like, kicked that can down the road. We were hoping to have that new process in place. For this year, it looks like really at the earliest it'll be Affecting the 2025 payment year. So just for our listeners to be aware of that, that we've been pushing for that transparent process.
1: Absolutely. And I think that process is going to help quite a bit once it does get implemented. And we definitely are making progress. It's just too bad and unfortunate that it's being delayed. So with respect to what are some of the reasons behind, you know, the codes being added in or deleted and why we don't get answers, I really feel that there are definitely considerations with respect to hospitals, you know, and some of the concerns that hospitals may have with respect to, you know, ASCs getting approval for more codes. They definitely see things differently from both a clinical and a financial standpoint. And the risk of uh, migration for high valued procedures can be detrimental sometimes to hospitals. And so I think that there's a lot of sensitivity to right. that. Right.
0: So so it's not just a matter that we're we're out there. Um, arguing and advocating for adding procedures, but there are other providers out there who are making a counter counterargument um, and, you know, to their own interest to keep things off of our list and on the HOPD or the inpatient only list.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. That there's definitely concerns when that ASC list grows, and in fact, I work with a lot of hospitals and health systems, and they quite often will ask me, "Is one of the lists going to be the same?" You know, and they're thinking about it and they want to understand. Which procedures are at risk because they're also very aware that not just CMS but other payers are driving those cases into the right side of service, which they know is the ASC for many of them.
0: Right. So it's a factor of of sometimes it's the commercial payer pushing ahead and allowing ASCs to do more, and that's impacting potentially what CMS might decide to do. And the reverse also could be the case where if CMS is keeping things off of our list that is making some commercial payers reticent to allow ASCs to perform those procedures on their beneficiaries.
1: Yes, they absolutely has implications both ways. And while CMS sometimes will set the precedent commercial payers have also set precedence because they're ahead of CMS in a lot of instances with respect to their approved covered procedure list. Right,
0: right. So, Nye, can you comment on any proposed policy changes or policies that have been adopted by CMS that have been addressed by ASCA and their implications on surgery migration?
1: Oh, absolutely. I will have to say that despite some of the setbacks that we've seen with deletion of codes, ASCA has made tremendous inroads for ASCs with respect to getting many of the total joint procedures approved, hysterectomies, the cardiology procedures. And now I really believe with the new 47, you know, lists that we're going after, we hope to see things like total shoulders and total ankles get approved. And I think we have a lot of momentum for that with the data we've been able to collect and demonstrate, you know, from commercial commercial. commercial payer experience, you know, how successful ASCs can be and that the outcomes are good. Obviously, these ASCs are not having issues with these patients, and that's demonstrating that, you know, this is safe and it can be performed in the ASC.
0: Yeah, and very frustrating, of course, when this proposed payment rule came out this summer was the fact that they proposed to add only one uh, new procedure, Uh, And quite honestly, a nominal procedure at that, an ENT procedure, and did not move any of the other 47 procedures that we think could safely be performed on appropriate Medicare patients. And the other issue that I think we find very troubling is the fact that they've also introduced into this process this idea that, A procedure has to be safe for the typical Medicare beneficiary, a term that is nowhere found in law or regulation and which is undefined and which really runs counter to the whole concept of the ASC model, which is we don't treat the typical patient we treat the appropriate patient who has the few comorbidities and are healthy enough to be seen outpatient, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think what they're not recognizing is that the ASCs have a responsibility under policy to ensure that they have the correct patient selection process and that physicians are you know, enduring that and overseeing that process. So it isn't just like anybody can walk through the door and and say, I want my surgery done at a surgery center. There's absolutely a process for ensuring the patient selection is appropriate for that surgery center. I mean, even when we analyze and look at hospital-based business that's ASC eligible, we spend a lot of time with clinical teams in the hospitals and anesthesia, right? Because they're determining based upon the ASA levels and things like that, whether or not a patient is appropriate for the ASC setting. And it's vetted out very carefully, Now, granted, ASCs can certainly do more since technology advances have occurred and, you know, medication and extended recovery care protocols and things like that, but they still are responsible for making sure that there's the appropriateness of the patient selection
0: process. Uh, Safety, obviously, is the first element. Well, I want you to talk a little bit about complexity adjustment and device costs. Can you give us a little rundown for our listeners of some of those and how they impact the ability of ASCs to perform procedures?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think one of the some of the greatest areas that ASCA has contributed to enabling, and I think these things do enable migration. First, I'll talk a little bit about the device offset percentage. The concept is complicated for a lot of folks, but over the years, starting from 2015 to 2022, we have taken the device offset percentage down from 50% to 30%. And so what that has done is it has enabled that device-intensive code list to expand, which creates more opportunity for increased reimbursement for surgery centers for codes that are classified as device-intensive because it adds more value to the reimbursement rate. So that has been very instrumental for device-intensive, costly procedures to get favorable impact on reimbursement, which allows cases to be done in the ASC. I remember years ago when ACL or rotator cuff, you couldn't do them because they were so cost prohibitive. And some of these changes have had a lot of impact.
0: Right. So the Medicare program, put them on our list, but because of the device costs and that barrier to getting the appropriate reimbursement for that, it made it impossible for Asees to do it and and exactly, even, even capture their cost back.
1: Exactly. And I think that's some of the issue that's going on with SPINE right now. And ASCA is being very progressive on SPINE. While SPINE has been approved, one of the problems with the payment policy with CMS is that most of the add-on codes that are performed with SPINE have an N1 status indicator, which means they're packaged, right? So they don't get paid for any additional codes. And as you add more segments to a case... Even with an ACDF, almost every code will tell you it indicates that there's an allograft or there's instrumentation or there's some kind of hardware used. And so the cost is actually getting bigger as you add more of those codes, yet there's no additional reimbursement. So this year, you know, with CMS introducing the complexity adjustment factor, which has a favorable potential impact on cardiology and some other codes, we have now, you know, in our response to CMS outlined some really concrete points about spine and talked about could spine be considered for a complexity adjustment factor to demonstrate These are bigger cases, they are more complex, and they've got, from a cost standpoint, the attributes that would make sense to potentially have that occur if they're not going to change that payment indicator.
0: Yeah, because one of the things that, you know, and I'm like a broken record on this point, is that if CMS would at least find ways to incentivize migration to lower cost setting for appropriate patients... By doing things like dealing with the device costs and recognizing that you need a complexity adjustment because of these add-on procedures, that you'd be able to migrate care and save the program billions of dollars, that that would be freed up to be spent somewhere else. And the fact that they seem agnostic about trying to do that, we find very frustrating. So we certainly appreciate all the data you produce to kind of help us make those arguments.
1: And it's interesting though, because with spine, right, there's not only the opportunity to reduce the cost going to ASC, but also to reduce it going to H O P D. Right. And they have the same issue because they don't get paid for any of the add-on codes either. And so like we've talked about, not every single case is ASC eligible, but can it get to the outpatient setting Mm -hmm. and then ultimately result in a cost savings, potentially billions of dollars of opportunity for cost saving?
0: Right. So looking beyond those changes and based what you're hearing and seeing in your practice, what do you think we're most likely to see in terms of migration in the future? For example, we hear a lot of speculation about additional spine and cardiac procedures. What's your prediction over the short horizon of the next few years?
1: I actually just recently did a study on spine and cardiology, both. And there's a significant opportunity for both of those case types to move into the outpatient setting. I do think spine probably has a little bit more momentum than cardiology, but one of the major components that's stifling spine is the reimbursement for sure. Um, And I think if some of those corrections are made, we'll see more of the spine move. I think cardiology is definitely a hot topic, but it's very carefully vetted out, right, because of the comorbidities associated with those patients. One of the things that I think is really interesting about cardiology, though, is that hospitals are recognizing that they need that lower cost side of service. So they're thinking more about, how do I put an ASC inside my heart center? Like, so inside the walls, which makes a whole lot of sense. So you have the lower cost setting, but you're also in the vicinity, you know, of the hospital so that they can monitor those patients and potentially have more access, so to speak. So I think that's a interesting component.
0: And make it easier for a transfer. Yes, yeah, if something
1: yeah. were to happen. But that's also, you know, all about the careful patient selection and screening process as well. Obviously, the states have different rules and you can't do all of those codes in every state. But I do see hospitals looking at we need to have this lower cost side of service. And I've seen a lot of, you know, surgery centers looking at putting it in, but it's usually these very specific cardiology ASCs or OBL that wants to add an ASC component to do more. So it's interesting to see what will happen with cardiology, but there's definitely a lot of activity going on with cardiology as
0: well. Fascinating. Well, before I let you go, I have one other question. And that has to do, we already kind of talked about the patient selection criteria that the Medicare program uses. But we clearly have a great value proposition that we've made to the government. You know, we've been talking about that. But are you seeing that value proposition starting to take greater hold among large employers and commercial payers as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. If you think about the level of self insured employer groups, most people don't realize that there's some of these payers have 80 to 85% ASO lines of business. So that self insured business, the employer is completely at risk for the dollars and they're paying attention to site of service and how much their spend is based upon site of service. There's some of the major employer groups that have designed for example total joint programs and i've seen them move patients actually over state lines to find ascs with providers that can do total joints and then they direct contract with them they're also putting pressure and holding the payers accountable for their spend so the employer groups are putting pressure on the payers and now payers are developing some pretty strong site of service policies. And United Healthcare has one of the biggest ones. It is out there on the internet. And actually last year, they actually added several codes to their Medicare Advantage product, which I thought was really interesting because they started in 2015 and they only had like 24 or 25 codes on this site of service policy. Now, you know, then it went over a thousand. It might be getting close to 2000. I and now there's about, I think, 150 or so on the Medicare Advantage list. And so you've got a payer that's basically saying, if an ASC is available in the physician's credentialed, if there isn't a clinical reason why they shouldn't be there, the patient really has no benefits to have it be done in the hospital. Blue Cross of Minnesota, Empire Blue Cross of New York, and several other blues plans are adopting similar policies. Um, I also have heard that Anthem of California is working on those policies as well. And so they are really putting the pressure on side of service, and that's what's making hospitals and health systems react as well, because they realize if they don't have an ASC in their portfolio of services that they provide, they're losing that patient volume to those that have ASCs available because the patients don't have benefits.
0: Right. So the dynamic that we're looking to see the government embrace, which is not being agnostic and trying to develop policies to try and drive costs down and drive care to the more appropriate setting, on the commercial side, they're already ahead of that game. Oh, that, absolutely. That, that the, you know, the self-insured companies and payers are starting to try and build that out. Where heretofore, they basically were just letting the hospitals take whatever the hospitals wanted.
1: Well, I also think that one of the things the hospitals are starting to realize, and especially if they employ the physicians, if they have a surgery center, even if the physicians are not partners in it, they become more productive in the surgery center setting, and it's a better place for the patients. And there's a lot of hospitals and health systems that their ORs are at capacity So by moving that volume, it frees up capacity for them to do those bigger cases that need to be in the hospital. So I do think there's a lot more realization of that with hospitals and health systems. And they're much more aligned with the philosophy that I have got to have an ASC for that site of service because it's
0: needed. Great. That's really good to hear. Well, Naya, thank you for this great discussion. I know there's a lot more we could talk about, so we'll have to have you back again on another day, but we've run out of our times. So any last words?
1: Just if ASCs are preparing for surgery migration, because there's a lot of momentum with both CMS and commercial payers, just make sure you've done your homework, collect your data, And make sure that, you know, you understand what your cost structure is and that, you know, if you don't have uh, commercial contracts in place, talk to your payers because they'll probably be willing to work with you.
0: Well, thanks again for being on the podcast. Um, And once again, if anyone listening has additional questions, please don't hesitate to contact us or visit the ASCA website where more details on these and other important regulatory issues can be found. Until next time, please stay safe. And thanks again for tuning in.